Our scripture is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, and Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will... And the way Hebrew works, a lot of times to emphasize something, they'll say the same word twice. So literally, it's when you eat from it, you will die, die. But the way we translate it is you will certainly die. Then skipping ahead to three one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. And made coverings for themselves. The only sculpture that Michelangelo ever signed was the, anybody know? It was the Pieta, the statue of Mary holding her crucified son in her arms. The Pieta was placed in St. Peter's Basilica in the year 1500. And it remained there largely undisturbed until 1972. A vandal broke past the security guards and smashed it repeatedly with a hammer. The attack shattered Mary's left arm and also severely damaged her left eye and her veil. In a flash, in an instant, in the blink of an eye, this treasure of Renaissance art was was marred. It wasn't ruined, but it was severely damaged. I find that to be a really good description here of what's taking place in Genesis chapter 3. We have these age-old questions. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with me? How did the world get this way? How did things get this bad? And the answer the Bible provides us is that a dark, powerful enemy has entered into our world and savagely attacked us. We who are God's image bearers, we who are the very masterpieces of God's creation, we we are not ruined, but we are severely, severely damaged. And really, the word marred, marred masterpieces, that is a very fitting way to describe things. But you ask, how can Adam and Eve's story be my story? How can this work? I mean, I wasn't there in the garden. 
I didn't vote for this man or woman to represent me. How can I be held responsible for choices that they made? To which Genesis replies, you may not have chosen them, but that they have chosen you. <laughs> they are your parents, and you are their children. You know how we know that, that you're the children of Adam and Eve? Because you constantly, I constantly act, we behave like them. All of us, quite naturally and willingly, follow the, Adam, the way of Adam and Eve all the time. For whatever mysterious reason, and, and theologians have debated down through the centuries, how does original sin, because that's the doctrine we're describing here, how does original sin work? And why is it that we keep recapitulating this first sin day after day in our lives? Because that's what we do. We, we play, we press rewind and then play. Rewind and then play over and over again. We are Adam and Eve's sons and daughters. And had we been there, I'm sure we would have done exactly as they did. So my thesis this morning is since we are constantly replaying this tape, uh, there's got to be some things we can learn from the original. There's, uh, there's knowledge of the nature of temptation in this passage. There's knowledge about the, the tempter himself. How he lies to us? What's his biggest lie? How do we overcome the lie? This one event, I hope you realize, opened the door for every manner of evil to come into this world. But as we've been saying throughout our service thus far, God did not leave us in this place. Just like the Pieta, after it was damaged, a team of experts came in and they picked up every single shard and fragments of the damaged marble from the, from the ground and pieced it all back together, so too God has painstakingly pieced us back together and is making us whole again through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's start with verse 1. Let's begin with this character. It's always a good part, place to start in stories. You look at the characters of the story. Let's begin with the serpent. You're reading along in chapters 1 and 2, and you come to verse th- chapter 3, verse 1, and you're like, what is going on? Where did this character come from? What? A talking snake? And what's interesting is Moses does not give us any backstory. There's absolutely no context in Genesis which would help you understand why in the world a snake has appeared, and why, and why is he talking? Um, Moses doesn't give us any, any, any information or answer any of the questions. Incidentally, if you're not familiar with the Bible, talking animals do not appear very regularly in the Bible. There's only one place. Can anybody think of it? There's only one instance in the Bible where an animal talks, and that is yeah, Balaam's donkey. And in that instance, it says that God touched the animal's lips, and it began to talk. Uh, so, yeah, some wicked, dark power has done something similar here with snake. And I'll be honest, I don't understand why Eve, why that wouldn't be a dead giveaway for her. Like something is not quite right here. A snake is talking to me. I don't understand why she would have a dialogue with a talking snake. But before you dismiss the story out out, out of hand because of that, think about this. How does the devil normally operate? 
what is his modus operandi? I mean, the devil doesn't do obvious. That's the way the Satan works, right? He never walks down the street with a sign uh, on his t-shirt saying, I'm Satan and I'm going to lead you to hell. He is always extremely subtle and deceitful. The devil doesn't do obvious. So the one thing, I don't understand how you get a talking animal and it's a historical account. Yeah, I believe it is. Uh, I don't understand how it all worked, but the one thing I can be absolutely certain about is that it wasn't a dead giveaway to her. It was not obvious. There was nothing obviously wrong to Eve because he's always subtle and crafty. Verse 1, here is how the devil opens up with his line of questioning. opens up his line of questioning this way. He says, is it true the rumors that I've heard? Did God really forbid you to eat from any tree in the garden? Did he really say that? Did he really say that? So there's a, he opens up with, well, with an exaggeration. And, and Eve immediately recognizes that he is exaggerating here. And she rec- corrects him. She says, no, 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 no. God didn't say we couldn't eat of any tree, only from this one tree. Notice the very first thing Satan is doing. What does he do? He exaggerates the severity of the prohibition. He exaggerates the severity of the prohibition, and he exaggerates the negativity of the situation. He certainly doesn't accentuate the positive, does he? He certainly doesn't say, look at all this that God has given you. It's incredible. Take a look. Look around. You are in the Garden of Eden. You can eat almost anything here. This is unbelievable. You can walk with God in the cool of the day. True, you're not able to eat from one tree, but for goodness sake, what a small thing to ask in light of all of this. Satan never comes to us that way. He never, he never puts things in terms of in light of all of this. He never, ever, ever starts with a note of gratitude. He always begins with discontent. There's a humorous British retelling of, story, of this story, of this scene particularly, where the serpent in the story is played by a parrot, and God's prohibition concerns television. There is a forbidden channel that Adam and Eve are not allowed to watch on the television. Well, one day, Eve Eve is working in the kitchen, and a parrot flies in through the window. So they buy a birdcage, and they sit the parrot there on the counter in the room. The parrot does what parrots do. He's always talking in the background, constantly admiring himself in in the mirror. He squawks, Polly, that's a pretty bird. Pretty good, eh? (laughs) You can't watch the telly. (laughs) It's a British parrot. Polly wants a cracker. No telly for you. Well, this goes on for several days. And finally, Eve, she can bear it no more. So she walks into the living room and joins Adam on the sofa where he's been all along. Uh, And she takes the remote and click. The bright light of the forbidden channel appears on the screen. And a voice begins to beckon them softly, tenderly, to imagine how much better their kitchen would be and how much fuller and richer their lives would be if they would just buy this $500 blender. (laughs) 
The Forbidden Channel turns out to be a hypnotic infomercial. One continuous, never-ending, mesmerizing advertisement. And I thought, you know, that's really clever. What's clever is to cast the tempter as a parrot. What's a parrot doing? Always in the background. It's, it's always talking in the background. Just a little voice back there constantly going on. And this parrot, he's always speaking in the background. He's saying things like, don't you see what you're missing out on? Let me remind you what you do not have. In fact, the way that this parrot asks the question, it forces her in her reply to explicitly note the one thing that she does not have. As one writer observes, really, all the serpent has done at this point is he has asked her to feel sorry for herself at what she does not have and to lose the perspective of gratitude and joy that was previously hers. So there you have it. That's where it starts with self-pity and discontentment. Satan knows that we are always most prone to temptation when we are full of self-pity and discontentment. And he does that in this instance by exaggerating the severity of the prohibition. Then look how she responds. If you look at verses 2 and 3 with me. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, from the trees in the garden, but God said, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Did God say that? Is that how he put it originally? No, it isn't. If you look through Genesis 1 and 2, you'll find God never said not to touch the fruit. Now, you see what's happening, don't you? Now she's the one who's exaggerating the prohibition. It's almost as if she has, in a very subtle way, entered into the spirit of what Satan has just spoken. Yeah, that is, does seem kind of unreasonable, doesn't it? It's kind of unfair. We can't eat it and we can't even touch it. Gee, what kind of God, what kind of God would do this to me? I want you also to see where she says the tree is located. This is significant. Um, I never realized that this until um, I forgot who it was. I listened to this week who pointed this out. I think it's Rankin Wilburn. Um, where's the tree located? The tree is in the middle of the garden. In the middle of the garden. I mean, you can't kind of miss the, the middle of the garden, can you? It's there all the time for you to see. A daily reminder that you can't have it all. You cannot have it all, even in paradise. You can't have it all, even in paradise. You have to be content with having something less than all. You have to be content with having very, 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 very much, which is what we have, isn't it? That's what Adam and Eve had. They had each other. They had work to do. They had God to be with. They had everything they needed for life and and godliness. But listen very carefully. They were not content with the life that they had been given. That sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? For people who are not content with the very, 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 very much that we have been given... And that's why no one ever sins from a posture of gratitude. We always sin from a place that I've just described. Verse 4, let's look 
now at verse 4. If verse 1 it was spoken, as I imagine it, in a tone of incredulity, an incredulous tone, almost a sneer. I think of verse 1 as a sneer. Like, yeah, did he really? I can't believe that. Well, verse 4 is spoken in the tone of a secret. It's a, I got a secret to share with you. You know, I've been watching him. I've been watching all this go down. And this is the first opportunity I have had to come and speak with you about it. You know what? He's not being truthful. He's trying to keep you down. He knows that if you do this, you will be better. You will see better. Your horizons will be opened. You will reach your potential. He knows that if you eat this, you will be like him. And he doesn't want that to happen. He wants to keep you in your place. See, what the devil does in the secret is he ascribes jealousy to God. He says, I don't want you to, God doesn't want you to be like me. God gave them one rule. It was cut and dry. It was not an ambiguous rule. It was not a a rule like respect other people, which there are millions of ways you can either do that or not do that. (laughs) It's a very concrete rule. It's not even a moral rule. Have you ever noticed that? There's nothing inherently moral or immoral about eating fruit. It's not like God came along and said, hey guys, the one thing I I want you to remember, one thing to do, don't lie. Hey guys, I'm going to create some other human beings down the line here. So there's one thing I want you to follow. One rule, don't commit adultery. It wasn't something that was inherently moral. Why this rule? Why don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, here's the reason, I think. Um, the reason it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, co- is because God intended us to acquire it was supposed to be a means by which we, we do acquire, epistemologically, the knowledge of good and evil. There are two ways that this could have happened. It could happen from above, and it could happen from below. From above, if Adam and Eve had stood the test of the serpent, if they had obeyed this simple, unambiguous law, they would have come to know good and evil from above, as those who had mastered temptation, who, who were the lords over it. But as it happened, they came to know good and evil from below, as those who had been mastered by temptation itself. It's the whole difference between servant and master. And they were intended... See, here's what I think. I don't think... A lot of people say that God created human beings perfect. We were not created perfect. Because if we were created perfect, we wouldn't have been able to sin. We were created morally innocent and immature, And God's intention was for human beings to grow in maturity. And as we went along in this journey of life together with him, we would grow and mature in moral goodness. And the tree was intended to be a way for us to do so. That's my theory, at least. And that theory is not unique to me. Does that make sense? I hope I can explain it later afterwards. Whether or not that theory is correct, Adam and Eve didn't know those things because God didn't explain that to them. God didn't give them any reasons for not eating from the tree, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, except for one. There is one reason. Can you guess what it is? One reason why they are not to eat from the fruit of the tree. What is that one reason? 
It's because he said so. It's because he is the Lord. He is the creator. They are the creatures. And he said so. Kids, when your parents say, because I said so, that's why you should do it, there's pretty good foundation <laughs> for, for that statement. It's because I said so. And it's because you have to trust me. So they, couldn't, they couldn't point to any other reason. Uh, I think that's the reason why God, uh, let's see if I put it better. That's the reason why God gave them an, a morally neutral issue. They couldn't point to the morality. They couldn't say, hey, the fruit it has, it's too fattening and it won't be good for me. The fruit has too many carbs in it. There was nothing they could point to other than simply, God told me and I, I'm supposed to trust him about it. That is why we should obey. If God is who we say is as Christians, if God is Trinity, then the essence of life is relationship. And the essence of relationship is trust. Will I trust you? That, I think, friends, is what the devil is trying to undermine. The serpent, the parrot, the snake, the whatever, is always operating from, I'll use the big word, uh, a hermeneutic of suspicion. He is always speaking and trying to get you to suspect God. I'm telling you, he's not good. You shouldn't naturally trust him. He's trying to keep something from you. He's trying to keep something that belongs to you. He is out to get you. Don't trust him. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, God is not good. That's the big lie. That's the lie that we all believe. That is the taproot of all of our misery, all of our anxiety, all of our fear. Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish minister, tells a story to try to get this across. He says, imagine around Christmas time, a man and his little boy, uh, the father takes his, his son, his little boy, to a toy superstore. And they're walking along all the way through the store, and the dad says, hey, do you see this, son? Would you like that? And the little boy's eyes light up. Oh, yeah, daddy. They go a little further. Do you see this? Do you see these things? Oh, yeah. Would you like some of those? Would you like that? Oh, yes, daddy. He goes all the way through the store that way, gets to the very end of the story, turns to his son and says, let me tell you why I brought you here, son. I brought here, I brought you here to let you know that you'll have none of it. Sorry, kid. You'll have none of it. And the punchline that Ferguson uses, he says, is that is what you believe in your heart of hearts about God. If you don't know that about yourself, you don't know yourself very well. You do not believe that God has your best interests at heart. You believe he's never going to give you the things you most want in life. You think that following him will cut you off from a life of fulfillment and satisfaction. And so that is why you reach out and grab that which is not yours. 
It's so monstrously wicked that the, the serpent would twist reality in this way. Because we know that God is utterly good. We know it is ugly beyond words to suggest that God has some selfish, cruel, jealous plans up his sleeve. We even know that by our own experience. Isn't it true that the, the times you've been happiest in your life have been the times when you have walked most closely with him, most trustingly with him, when you've delighted in his goodness the most, the times that you uh, mastered temptation were the times that you were happily living near him in fellowship. I mean, for some of you, you're like, man, that's been a long time ago. I'm just pretty heavy today. It's been a long, long time. But you remember it. There's a faint echo of that memory in your head. See, the serpent knows that if he can get them to accept this idea that God is not good and to operate with God, towards God, from a place of suspicion that he is cutting us off from our power to resist the temptations of the enemy. If he cuts us off from the goodness of God, then we are at his mercy. The essence of sin is a lie. The lie comes in many forms, but when you peel it back, you will always find this is at the very center, that God is not good. Verse 7. Let's look at this as we start to finish the sermon. Verse 7. Look there. Remember the serpent's prediction earlier? I think it was in verse 5. He, he predicted that if they ate the fruit, their eyes would be open and they would be like God. In verse 7, we then have this mockery of the promised enlightenment. Because we read here that then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's going on here? They never had any clothes on to begin with. Did they all, were they physically blind and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, I don't have my boxers on. Now, they didn't lose any physical clothes, did they? But they did lose something. They lost something that was clothing them. They lost their righteousness. They lost their acceptability. They lost their purity. They lost their self-respect. And they lost their glory. In the book of Hebrews, it says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account Previous to this event, they felt perfectly comfortable being naked. And I mean, obviously, nakedness is just is a metaphor for vulnerable. They felt perfectly comfortable being vulnerable before God and before each other. Afterwards, absolute vulnerability is traumatizing. Up until this point in the story, they're okay with it. But now not being uh, covered is traumatic. Have you ever, um, think back to junior high or high school, you're changing in the locker room, maybe you're showering in the locker room, heaven forbid, and you hear a voice from the other side of the locker room call out, take cover! What does that mean? That means that somebody 
who is not supposed to be in that room is about to walk into that room. Somebody who is not supposed to see you is about to see you. And you're like, ah, oh, find, a, find a towel, find something. I mean, they say take cover when God comes. That was never how this relationship was supposed to be. When we, when we are with someone, we want that person to look at us and say, I love everything I see about you. I love what I see. And shame is that painful sense of inadequacy and degradation that we feel when we look at ourselves and we hate what we see. We drop our head. We drop our eyes. We can't stand to have somebody else see us. We feel small. We feel despicable. We cannot stand to be known. Jesus came to bring a covering back to us. He came to clothe us again. Uh, okay, I'll tell you one more s- s- anecdotal story. I heard Ray Cortez, you know, one of my favorite pastor preachers from Florida. He said the, one of the most he said the, the most powerful moments in his ministry was after one Sunday. He was preaching. He didn't even give an altar call. He didn't ask people to bow their heads, close their eyes, and ask Jesus into their life. He said some lady in the service became a Christian in the middle of the service, and she came up to him afterwards, and she said, you know what, Ray? I just became a Christian, and instantly I knew that I don't have to color my hair anymore. And he's like, coloring your hair isn't bad. (laughs) I don't have to color my hair anymore. I had to do that before I knew Jesus, which was just a few minutes ago. But now I don't have to like cover myself and present myself in a way that I, I had to all my life. Because um, he, is, he has covered me. We feel small, despicable, and cannot stand to be known. But so to restore our created dignity, God became one of us. He became a man to restore what the first man lost. And as the last Adam, he came to recover what the first Adam squandered. Jesus came to show us what it means to be human. He came to pay our debt. He came to atone for us. And just as the Pieta was painstakingly put back together by a team of experts. So God has, it was painful, right, to put us back together. He did this by means of a tree. George Herbert, the 17th century poet, there's a place where he says in a poem, he's depicting Jesus looking down from the cross and speaking. And these are the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus says. He says, O all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. The tree of life to all, but only me was ever grief like mine. When you hear the parrot speaking in your ear, whispering in your ear, 
saying, God is not good. Would a God who sent his son into the world to climb the tree, is that the way a God would treat you if he's not good? And if he doesn't have your best interests in heart, it is a delusion to doubt and distrust him. It is sheer madness to listen to that tempter's voice. Tim Keller writes, somebody has thrown dust in your eyes. Somebody has thrown smoke in your eyes. And what it means to worship God is to rub your eyes, to get it out of your eyes and to actually see Christ. Adam, the head of humanity, cast our race into slavery to sin. But a new Adam, a new head has come to restore the damaged masterpieces And that's why we say together, thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.